0: You're listening to Voice Acting Mastery, episode number 14.
1: Welcome to the Voice Acting Mastery podcast with Crispin Freeman. VoiceActingMastery.com is your place to learn both the skills and the mindset you need to become a professional voice actor, even if you're just getting started. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover valuable tips, tricks, and insider information to help you portray characters in animation, video games, and beyond. And now here's your host, Voice actor Crispin
0: Freeman. Hi there. My name is Crispin Freeman, and I'll be your guide through the world of voice acting. If you'd like to know more about me, feel free to check out my personal website at www.crispinfreeman.com. In this episode of Voice Acting Mastery, I'll be continuing my discussion with one of the great legends of the voice acting world, Jack Angel. In the last episode, Jack shared with us his unusual path from wanting to be a cartoonist to joining the army to becoming a radio disc jockey. In this part of the interview, Jack shares with us how he made the transition from radio to voice acting in cartoons. I think you'll find it very enlightening.
1: And now, the feature segment. So, you had
0: your aha moment in the Army. Yeah. You came back to San Francisco State, and you were studying radio, and they were teaching you to be Lone Ranger, even though you were going to go off and be a disc jockey. Right. And then you went off and and were a disc jockey for a long time, right? 18 years. For 18 years,
2: in sort of the uh, middle of California, right? Well, I started in Merced, Mm -hmm. which is in the middle of California. Then I went to Santa Rosa, which is just north of San Francisco, from there to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Then they sold the radio station I was at and fired everybody. And I went to Reno Mm -hmm. and worked in Reno for a few years in radio and television. By the time I got to Los Angeles, I had been in radio for 11 years. I'd gone through smaller radio stations guy, with working for guys who had to fight their way into the ratings and fight their way to stay in the market and make money. And I realized how you run a radio station. And, and I worked for guys who were radio people and guys who were bean counters and, and watched how the, the stations flourished under one and didn't flourish under the other. Mm-hmm. So when I got to L.A., one would think that if you're in this, the biggest market on the West Coast, that these people would know what they're doing. How You'd the think. hell do you get here and not know what you're doing? That was, you know. And then I discovered that they didn't know what they were doing. And so now it's okay for you to know more than the boss, but when you keep telling them <laughs> that you know more, they don't like you. Yeah, and they don't want you around, and so they get rid of you. So that was, I I worked at KFI twice, got fired both times, but uh, when I finally was fired right out of radio the last time, uh, it was devastating uh, because I had three little kids uh, and a wife, and uh, I didn't want to leave LA, I'd worked hard to get here, and uh, so I thought, whoa, what do I do now? And so I, I was, already hadn't made some inroads as a voiceover artist. And I thought, I'm just going to promote the hell out of myself and do that. So uh, I, I went whole hog into doing voiceovers. Two years later, I heard me say, Boy, am I glad KFI fired me. And then I thought, Oh, wait, that was the worst thing that had ever happened. So so in the scheme of things, the worst thing had transformed itself to the best thing because I was now making twice as much money as I've ever made as a disc jockey. I didn't have to go to meetings and have some jerk who could never do it tell me I was doing it wrong. I got all the holidays and weekends off, and it was a whole new life. I'd spent 18 years working... Christmas and Sundays and all that stuff. So so anyway, uh, I, I was living and I thought, wow, if the worst thing transforms to the best, then there's a line in between. All the stuff on this side is the bad stuff and all this stuff is the good stuff. Well, I said, okay, I've got to transform all this bad stuff. If that worst thing helped get me to this moment, then all the stuff that wasn't quite so bad also helped get me to this moment, all the negative stuff. It was just stuff, and I called it negative. Mm-hmm. It, it was mine, so I decided I'm going to transform all that too. And the game I played was to roll the film in my head and go to a person or an event or whatever that I held negatively, and that I had to find three ways that that got me to now. Like that led to this, led to this, led to now, right? Interesting. Okay. So, yeah. So in so doing, and I said three ways because I wanted to, I wanted to. Uh, overpower the one negative by having th- having it transformed into three positives. Right. So, in and, and invariably, uh, always found three, sometimes more. Uh, the 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 web was all interconnected. You know. So, finally, after about a year, I just got bored doing it, uh, and, and I, I was so much lighter. I could stand up so much straighter because I wasn't burdened with a great big, huge bag of negativity that most people carry around with them. You know, it was all gone, or almost all gone. So the conclusion was that there are no negatives. And then I said, oh, wait a minute. If I come into this booth and I audition for the Ford account and I don't get it, why isn't that a big, fat negative?" negative? Yeah. Yeah. And and it took me a couple of weeks to figure it out. And I, while I was explaining something to some younger guys, uh, what I was explaining was that everybody has a ratio. You come in and you uh, you audition ten times and you get one. So you, so that makes your ratio one out of ten. Well, then the faster you get through the nine that aren't yours, the faster you get to number ten. Right. So every time you don't get one, it's a win because. You're, that's not yours. You, so you're you're getting, getting closer to the one that is yours. Right. So so that's positive. Every mm-hmm. step away, of the way is a positive. And if you look at it that way, then you're not carrying this big bag of, I lost all the time. Yeah. In fact, you can't lose because it was never yours to lose. It was only yours to win. You can't lose something that wasn't yours in the first place. So that Ford account wasn't mine. Right. I could have won it, but I didn't. But it was a step on the one to the, that is yes. yours. Yes, right. Yeah. That's
0: brilliant. So I want to go back for just a second because I want to, there's a couple of transitions that happened, and I'm sure that people would be curious to know exactly how they happened. How did the transition work when you were leaving radio into voiceover? How did you get into the, the voiceover? Well, war?
2: while I was, when I finally got to LA, well, no, let, let me stop. All along the way, I did voiceovers. Uh, when I got to Reno, the, the Reno station was um, last in a market of seven. And we, we took it from last to first in a year and a half. And one of the ways that we s- salvaged that radio station was it had no business. And so I said to the salesman, instead of going out and selling this nebulous thing called airtime, tell me who you're going to go see and I will create a radio spot for you, which you can then take in and say, "This we can put this on the air for you, and this is going to generate some some interest." Yeah. So when they were able to hear a produced radio commercial, they were thrilled, and uh, we did we had a hundred percent record uh, for the first month or so of everything that I created. They were able to sell, and so I had the that created a background of writing and producing what were pretty terrific radio spots at the time. And you've been doing that all through your radio career, basically. Yeah, right. And, and while I was a disc jockey, I, I I got in at Hanna-Barbera and was doing Super Friends. Uh, I how did you get in at Hanna-Barbera? Auditioned.
0: So you were in L.A. as a disc jockey. Yeah. And then there, how did you get access to auditions for Hanna-Barbera? You know,
2: uh, I'm not sure whether they... Asked for me, or my agent called and said, uh, uh, the, the, when the call came out, for, for I think they called. So you you were a radio disc jockey, but then you also
0: had a voiceover agent? Yeah. Okay. Did, did radio disc jockeys need voiceover agents, or did you get a voiceover agent after you'd come to L.A. as a disc jockey? In order the only to get... time I ever had an agent
2: was when I got to L.A. I never had agents before that.
0: Okay. So how did you get the agent when you
2: came to L.A. as well, a disc jockey? Oh, well, the first agent... I was at KMPC, and Gary Owens, uh, who was, do you know who Gary Owens is? No. He, did, are you old enough to remember Laugh-In? Yes. He was the announcer on Laugh-In who held his ear. Gotcha. This is Gary Owens. Okay, Gary worked at KMPC. He was the heavyweight afternoon drive guy and a wonderful, wonderful man. He was a terrific j- disc jockey. I had made a demo tape, and I took it to him to listen to. And he said, God, it's terrific. And I said, well, what do I do with it? And about that time, his agent walked in. And he said, well, you play it for this guy. And he said, what? And I said, "I said, well, listen to this. And he said, oh, that's a great tape. He said, oh, I could sell that. And I said, yeah, but will you? He said, oh, you don't have an agent? I said, no. He said, oh, okay. <laughs> so, there you go. There you go. I mean, for me, it's always been fairly simple. Uh, they listen to what I do, and they seem to like it. So it sounds like it's, it's sort of been a, a
0: combination of people you knew in the industry that you had made friends with who uh, appreciated and you liked you as a person, but then you could also deliver because you could do good reads. You had the skills as well. It was a combination
2: of yeah. having the skills and then... I mean, I, I have a long history with Pixar from, from their very first Toy Story. I got into a looping group. Mm-hmm. Uh, for uh, with a friend of mine who who uh, a, a looping group you know what a looping group is for the benefit of the people who are listening they we do incidental voices primarily on uh, cartoon shows, N- not the star voices but the the ancillary characters that the background are there characters. but when Pixar heard us, they said, "Oh God, you guys are so talented instead of." Having you do voices to what we've animated. Next time, we will come and have you lay down the tracks and we'll animate to you. Yeah. Which is the ultimate compliment. So that's what they've done. And so I've been in lots and lots of Pixar movies ever since. Were, was animation and cartoons something you wanted to work on? Always. Okay. And in fact, when I was in Portland and I said as my goodbyes... To my audience in Portland, I'm going to Los Angeles, and the next time you hear me, I'll be doing cartoon voices. Nice. Yeah.
0: So you auditioned for Hanna-Barbera, and that was the Super Friends? Was that the first thing you auditioned for? And you got cast as Hawkman, I think it was? It was Hawkman, The Flash, and Super Samurai. Super Samurai. And who was directing at the time? Wally Burr. And so after uh, working on Super Friends, then... Did
2: that lead to your other animation work as well? Well, lo- a lot because uh, Wally left Hanna-Barbera and he started Wally Burr Studios, and he did. Uh, he was the director of of uh, for Marvel of m- many of the Marvel shows, um, but uh, the Transformers G. and GI Joe and right. Gem and the Holograms, and mm-hmm. so did Wally basically have sort of a troop of actors that he liked to pull from for his shows yeah but uh, but most of his his shows were big voice guys you know big I rule the universe kind of guys Mm -hmm. so although there were some lighter voices but most of those Transformer characters were big iron things you know yeah so uh, he got guys with that had the capability of doing big voices as well as uh, you know some of the guys that would do this too you know Mm -hmm. How many of them had formal acting training? Oh, I don't know. Probably all of them. But you did not, right? No, I never went to acting school.
0: So how did you become... The question that most people would have is, how did you become such a successful actor having never gone to acting school? I just bluffed my way through.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, like I say, I've just been lucky. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I, you know... I'm a fairly decent mimic, um, and I can, you know, talking about Bogart, you know, I think I do the best Bogart in town, but most of the guys who do Bogart are dead now, including him. But, you know, he was, yes, that's right, sweetheart, we'll always have Paris. Uh, I've always been able to manipulate my, and I played with the mechanism, you know, mm-hmm. so that, uh, you know, I never used to be able to do this, and then I kept trying, and then pretty soon I could do it. so and and i also you know can do this and i think the ability to do the voices started with my father had a grocery store first off my father was greek and he spoke with an accent so around me were these accents in his grocery store he had a chinese butcher who spoke with an accent and there were there was an old black guy who used to come in and and he would want a bottle of wine. It was a wino. He said, I want me a bottle of muss, I tell it. He wanted muscatel. It's a nice little sweet wine. I want me a bottle of Muscatel. it. There was an old Italian guy who had no teeth. And during World War II, it was hard to get gum because all the stuff like that went to the troops. But he every day would come in. Hey, John, uh, you got gum? Uh, no gum. Oh uh, No, okay. And he would leave, you know. And I always thought, what would he do with it if he had it? Because <laughs> he had no teeth. <laughs> but all those people that came in with all these wonderful accents were, were, the, were the people that, that I learned from, you know, listened, listened to them and, and how they spoke.
0: The more I talk with Jack, the more I realize how amazing his outlook is on voice acting, life, and the synchronicities in our day-to-day experiences that seem random, but in fact aren't. There are no mistakes, as Jack likes to say. And almost every event in our lives can work in our favor, as long as we look at it in the right way. In the next episode, we'll delve deeper into Jack's philosophies as he shares with us his advice on the best way to approach a successful career in voice acting. See you then.
1: You've been listening to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. To get your free report revealing the five most common mistakes to avoid in voice acting, point your web browser to www.freevoiceactinggift.com Thanks for listening.